This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Okay, hello. Good evening, Aaron. Yes, good evening, Aaron. Um, before we begin, let us uh, engage ourselves in some prayer, quiet our spirits before the Lord. Who would like to pray for us tonight? Father, we thank you for this time set aside to come before your word. Father, we pray that you honor us with your presence and indwell us by your spirit that we may be led into truth and into a better understanding of your mission and your love for the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So we continue our study through Acts 17. Now, let's remember the focus, of course, is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, uh, particularly noting when he does or does not uh, appear, although it is fun to discuss and talk about all the other stuff that goes with Acts as well. But uh, at the end of our study, we will be looking at, uh, again, all in summary, all the things that the Holy Spirit is recorded as having d- done. Okay. And then comparing uh, what we thought he did at the beginning of our study, for those that were here at the beginning of our study. Was there anybody here at the beginning of our study? <laughs> you were here? Okay. All right. So, in podcast land, fantastic. So, going through last week's uh, 15 verses uh, of Acts chapter 17. So, we get a recording that the companions deliver the message of Jesus as the risen Messiah to three cities. That's what Acts 17 is about. Um, The message of the Messiah to Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. It was a three-day walk from Philippi to Thessalonica. Western texts describe the visit to Amphipolis on the journey, while Alexandrian texts do not. So our our acts in our Bible is, is Alexandrian texts. Does everyone know the difference between Alexandrian and Western texts? Just, just different groupings of text manuscripts, um, particularly in the West. That's why they're called Western texts. Uh, in places like um, what we today call Morocco and Tunisia and Libya, Algeria, they used a grouping of Bible called Western texts, which tended to be when they were copying, people copied them and just and really liked adding stuff. Okay, so they tended to be larger, have more material, uh, and Uh, We might find that a little strange in the way we do things. However, let's also remember that many of our early church fathers were from the West. And that was the Bible they read. Including Tertullian, who is the first person to ever use the word the Trinity trying to describe God. His Bible wasn't the same as, as ours. Paul and his companions principally begin in the synagogues, where Jewish custom will give Paul an audience. Uh, This the companions do over a period of a month, described as three Sabbaths here in Thessalonica. The Greek word dialogue, dialogue, signifies the exchange of questions and answers, and they're doing so from the Greek Septuagint scriptures. Remember, when Paul goes into a synagogue and he's arguing with people, what Bible is he arguing over? Greek. He's not arguing over Hebrew manuscripts. Okay. Paul's message was that the Messiah must suffer and resurrect. And doesn't matter whether you're reading Aramaic, Greek, or Hebrew, you will come to that same conclusion. And this occurs 
The resurrection and the suffering occurs in the person of Jesus, making him the Messiah. No mention is made of the need for sacrifices and the blood of Jesus. That will come later. But at the time, when the initial movement is going out, that is not what you walk into a church or a synagogue and start saying. While in Thessalonica, the team received support from the community in Philippi, meeting in the house of Lydia. And we read the Philippians passage where Paul describes how supportive the community of Philippi was. So Lydia and her uh, purple cloth industry and the jailer were funding the mission. Paul receives a positive response from both the Jews and Gentiles. And Luke continues to note the rich Gentile women who also uh, join the movement. No mention is made of the Holy Spirit, baptisms, tongues, or miracles. In fact, in all of these three cities, none of that is going to occur. Not going to be mentioned, I should say. What, it, what was it that opened the eyes of the people? Bible study. Jewish literature of the Second Temple period is demonstrated to have grouped messianic properties into documents for particular study. An example that we looked at was 4Q Testimonia of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so in the, in the Second Temple period, Jewish communities were grouping prophecies together into set documents to work out what is the Messiah going to do. Okay, we do it, they were already doing it. Jealousy once again makes its home among some of the Jewish people. Gathering a mob, they incite a riot among the Gentiles. The rioters seek Paul and Silas at the home of Jason. Who is Jason? I hear you ask. Jason of Thessalonica is believed to be the same Jason from Romans 16 verse 21. There he is noted as being actually a relative related to Paul. Hagiography, that is the history of holy people, records that Jason as Jason of Tarsus, cousin to Paul, Hellenized Jew whom Paul charges with becoming the Bishop of Tarsus who ends up with a long and distinguished career in that, in that area. He doesn't actually suffer martyrdom like everybody else. He ends up actually um, living to a nice ripe old age. In Greek mythology, Jason and the Argonauts also hail from Thessalonica. So Thessalonica ended up with a couple of famous people using the, the name Jason. The charges that our uh, incited mob charge Paul and Silas with are false but with a slight attachment to the truth. The Jesus movement does actually advocate a king other than Caesar. Yes? Yes. However, it does not advocate rebellion. And so, partly it is true when they say, they are saying that there's another king other than Caesar. Well, technically that is true. But it does, it's not to incite people to rebellion. Discretion can be the better part of valor, and in this case, Paul and Silas are smuggled out of the city. Okay? They do not stand up and face the crowds. Sometimes, when, you, when the opportunity to run, it is a good thing. And we noted that Jesus himself had given us a warning to run. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, what do you do? What does Jesus say to do? Run. Run! He doesn't say, march in there and slay the devil. Okay? run. And so sometimes it is just as heroic to run. There can be wisdom in running away. Note, there has been no word of the Holy Spirit directing this activity. This does not mean that the Spirit was silent during this time. However, 
sacred history, that is what we are reading, that is the record that we have, has chosen not to mention it. So be careful when creating doctrine from silence. Okay? So we have three cities that Paul goes and approaches, and in all three cities, no miracles are recorded, no Holy Spirit is discovered, people come to faith through a Bible study. Upon arrival in Berea, Paul and Silas seek assistance from the synagogue, which is customary. In the, in the Second Temple period, Jewish businesses would go to the um, local synagogue where they could be expected to get assistance, if not lodging in itself. Okay. They also continue to debate dialogue with the community over the scriptures. Luke here then records the Bereans as being noble. That's his, his, uh, his adjective because they did not let jealousy rule them, and they studied the scriptures in response to Paul's explanations, most likely in their uh, local Beit Midrash. Again, no mention of the spirit, baptism, miracles, or tongues. Instead, success is met through Bible study amongst Jews, Gentiles, and yes, of course, the rich women. Thanks, Luke. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea constitute the three major settlements of Macedonia. The vision of the Macedonian man calling for help has been fulfilled. The Jewish community of Thessalonica seeks to defend the Jewish community of Berea against heresy and this teaching of the Messiah. Note, they honestly think they are doing a good thing. And so we noted that even our opponents today, like Yad Lachim and Yad Lahava, they might come out here and yell and scream, but they honestly think that they are doing the right thing. They honestly think that they are protecting Jewish people. Okay, so they incite the Gentiles against Paul, and once again he is required to flee. This time only Luke accompanies him, with uh, Silas and Timothy remaining in Berea. Paul and Luke now find themselves in the ancient city of Athens, where we pick up our, uh, the narrative. Any questions from last week? Great, good. Let's now read um, verses 16 to the end. Okay. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean philosophers also confronted him. And some said, what would this popular wish to say? In others, he seems to be an announcer of foreign deities because he was announcing Jesus in the resurrection as the gospel. Then they took him and brought him to the Nicolaitan area of where they said to him, They know what they need to You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. Know all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there who spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I went into the city and looked carefully at the object of your worship, I found among them, I found them an altar with inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore your worship have done is that I proclaim to you. The burden of the world and everything in 
it is the work of heaven and earth and does not reveal in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and bread and everything else. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all face of the earth, and he determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. That they should they were to search for him and perhaps grope around for him and find him, yet he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all by raising them from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out for their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Excellent. Okay. Uh, in Paul's big speech, is there anything there that you uh, notice or anything there that stands out? Or is there anything there that's absent? Well, Heather and I noticed last time that we just thought Paul gave a great synopsis of the gospel and how we can explain it to people <laughs> right there in verses uh, 30 through 31. Yeah. Yeah, we made it a point to try to remember the elements of what he said, because it was just, those, okay. that's it. Yeah. Repent. The Messiah is risen, and he's coming to judge the world. Yep, okay. <laughs> and we have assurance of this, because he was raised from the dead, that, that this is mm-hmm. the man. So in Paul's uh, quite eloquent sp- speech, um, what, doesn't he, what doesn't he do? He doesn't give the name of God. Doesn't give the name of God, yeah, fair enough. Doesn't quote any Bible. He's quoting his own poem. He's quoting actually Greek. Uh, yeah. So, so when 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 giving it, uh, it's interesting that when Paul is uh, talking to people who don't know the Bible, no point quoting it. And uh, so that would be a good advice for us, would it not be? You're going to meet somebody who doesn't know any New Testament. There is no point. To say something like, you know, of course it says so in Philippians. We're like, oh, what? <laughs> yeah, so he uses something else. And so that's a pretty good model, I think, for us in terms of how we should, should behave. But let's have a little closer look at, uh, at the text. So what do you guys know about Athens? A room full of people. What do we know about Athens? Who's actually been to Athens? Great. Well, quite a few people. Excellent. Um, what do we know about the history of Athens? Athens is the place of the Acropolis, the high, elevated, the temple of the Greeks. Yep, they definitely had a large. Yeah, it's the uh, center of the worship of the Greek Yep, gods. and the whole city was 
was literally in like a little circle around it. Yeah. Was the first Olympics there? I don't know. Uh, plenty of Uzo. <laughs> yes, Uzo. Love that licorice drink. <laughs> they used to argue things down there in the Areopagus. Right, well we know that because of the here, yeah. It was, right. So Athens, Athens was a Greek city-state, yes? Mm -hmm. right. And then eventually it gets conquered by the Romans. And uh, uh, in, as in Roman politics, they constantly had little civil wars. Various generals wanted to fight various generals. And different cities, cities would side with various generals uh, to, their de to their detriment or to their benefit, depending on who actually won. Well, Athens was pretty clever and for most of the time usually picked the winner. And so managed to uh, never actually get, get itself wiped out. Uh, and even when it picked the loser, uh, it did so in such a way that it didn't actually suffer too much punishment. So it never really had a big army. It became uh, quite, in terms of uh, uh, wealth, it became, it became quite, quite a, a idol manufacturer, big, big reservoir of religion, and then the attraction of philosophy. Um, and it's a, it's a city, not a Roman colony. So other places that we've encountered somewhere in the Bible, uh, like Philippi, these are Roman colonies. These are places that are established by Romans. So there's a high degree of Latin and things like that. Whereas here, we're definitely a city uh, with, with, it, with, with its own way of jurisdiction and own way of doing business. Uh, and then the chief language being, of course, Greek. It's also the, the origin of the uh, atheists the competition of the Greek gods in their competition through the sports. Also from there, all the gods are fighting one another. This is the only, the beginning of the Olympic Games. They're from Athens. Oh, that I, I don't know. But yep, could be. Um, all right, so Paul is in Athens, verse 16. And he's waiting for his friends who is calling. He's calling for Silas, uh, the prophet, and Timothy. So Paul's just the one with him. So Paul's around so he can actually record the speech right, as an eyewitness. Um, and it notes that he's greatly distressed to see a city full of idols. Um, surely Paul's been to other Greek cities already, right? What's, what's so particular about this now, do you think? Why do you think Luke records it now? More idols than other cities. It's a field that more idols. Could be. Could be just a, a sheer abundance. Yes. Could be. I mean, he's quite the zealot, isn't he? And uh, we know that one of the chief commandments is, Thou shalt not make images. But of course, anyone who's a Hellenized Jew is going to have seen these before. I think there's quite a lot of them there. It's kind of the um, idol center on the earth. Reflecting yep. the, the heavenly realm of Greek gods. Yeah. I read a I read a Greek commentary on Athens, right from the time period. Uh, some guy's name starting with E, and uh, ending in S. Um, and he said it was much easier to find a god than a human being in Athens. <laughs> so if you went to the marketplace and said, "Listen, I'm looking for Eusebius," you're more likely to find Zeus, Apollo, Hermes before you actually found a guy called uh, Eusebius. <laughs> There was that much of the stuff. Wow. Um, yeah, so he's... It, and it, and it, it hurt. It hurt. Mm -hmm. um, 
Because for Jewish people, you know, idolatry is is the big sin, right? And uh, and uh, and and it had been because it's 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 it, it was it was endemic in the first temple period and led to their destruction. And so they did their best to get rid of it. So, um, how do Jewish people feel today about idolatry? We work among Jewish people. Disgusting. For some, this is true. And for others, not so much. Uh, for those of us who have been here on outreach events, uh, we know that Jewish people do walk into our church, but there are some who will not. Right? They will refuse. They will not come in. Um, uh, I study with a small group of uh, uh, rabbis, and um, one of them is uh, going on a really cheap holiday to Rome for the very first time. You know, one of those really cheap you know, whiz air packages. And he's like, what do I see? What shall I go and see? And everyone's giving him some advice. And I happen to say, are you, uh, are you brave enough to go into the basilica? <laughs> and he's like... Um, he leans back and he goes, hmm. And Mordecai, who's actually taught here, yes? For those of you who remember, he goes, Oh, yeah, I'm cool with it. <laughs> he says, Oh, there's some, there's some Michelangelo's in there. It's more of a museum, really, than a church, Aaron. I said, Yeah, actually, that's true. <laughs> but uh, uh, how do you guys, as Protestants, you know, we have often in our history, we have a real problem with statues, don't we? I mean, I personally don't, but, but some people do. Right? They really think that you put a statue in, I mean, they're going to worship it. Has anyone seen the small statue that uh, David put up in the front altar? Okay, it's, it's, it's of the angel coming down to stop Abraham as he's about to offer his the sack. Yeah. And it's, an, it's a representation of that event. We're coming up to that event as part of the reading cycle at, uh, at Rosh Hashanah. And... Um, uh, but there are members of our community who uh, have written nasty letters saying that this is idolatry. Oh, wow. There was a sculpture of that outside the Miller Mall for quite a long time. Yeah, you go through Miller Mall for, yeah. for yeah. full yeah. of statues. Yeah. 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 Well, the church fought this. Mm -hmm. it, you know, with, between East and West. Yes. West said yes, and he said no. That's right. And that's why we see in some remain churches uh, places where it's very difficult to not make any image. That's right. Do they have to go blood in? Otherwise, there was another council. The, the second Messian council. Yeah, to, okay. to decide against it. Yes or no? Yeah. And the church said? Yes. Yeah. You can have them. You can have them. Yeah. So we end up with icons in the east and we end up with statues in the west. But idolatry was a, one of those big issues, and you can see it here, sort of affecting Paul. Uh, I think that the emphasis that the New Testament gives on idolatry is not widely appreciated. This is a clear statement in the end of John 36, covetousness is idolatry. And he, he warns his, the people at the end of that letter, little children, keep protecting idols. Yes. Um, but this idea of covetousness is Lots of people are really comfortable with stuff and lots of stuff, you know, <laughs> and getting more stuff. Yeah. And that really is the elephant in the room, as far as I'm Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so idols can be other things other than, than statues. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. 
All right. Okay, so Paul uh, is in the city while he's waiting. He has an obvious platform to go and speak. Where is it? That's synagogue. Not only that, he also has the opportunity to go to the uh, various forums that exist uh, in, this, in this city. And so he goes to the synagogue in verse 17 and he reasons with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks because that's who's going to be there. Yes? As well, he goes to the marketplace or the open forum uh, where he discusses with people who are there. All right. So while he's in a synagogue, what is he going to have ac access to? He's going to have access to the Bible. And the Bible will be in which language? Greek. It's going to be in Greek. So he's going to have an opportunity to reason the scriptures with people. When he's out in the marketplace, what is he going to have access to? He's going to have access to idols. Lots of them, yes. <laughs> Maybe he can use them. <laughs> but what, he's not going to be able to have a, a scroll, is he? Right. So what do you think the message is going to be? It's obviously going to be different. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, what's that, uh, the, the, the idea of sharing the gospel in a, in a culturally sensitive way, I think, is, is highly, uh, very, very important learning. That includes, perhaps, not always having to quote the Bible, right? Um, and what was, uh, what's that line that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which is probably not his? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. Okay, so... Um, and so now we meet, now in the, in the public forum, not in the synagogue, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers begin to debate with him because this is the, the style. And some of them say, uh, what is this babbler trying to say? What other versions have you got? Okay, verse 18. Who have you got? Babbler. You've got the Greek there, haven't you? Yeah. Spermologos. Yeah. Mine says pseudo-intellectuals. Pseudo-intellectuals? Is it really? That's what they say? Yeah, what an interesting translation. Some said, what is the pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Okay. Interesting. But, uh, uh, that's the uh, translator adding his little interpretation in there. That's pretty cool. Anyone know much about Epicureanism? Which means life is short, just to eat and drink, have fun. <laughs> mm, kind of. That's a, yeah. Satisfy all your desires? Kind of. It, 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 that's, yeah, that's partly it. Um, do you want to, can you explain in five minutes Epicureanism? Uh, not an authority on it. It's oh, okay. uh, that the. Um, point of life is to uh, live, live well and enjoy it. Yes, so the in Greek Greek, Greek uh, religious figures didn't believe in a resurrection. Right? When you died, you went to the heavenly realms, which were very beautiful places. Right? Olympus, uh, Elysium, these kinds of things. There was no point coming back. So what was this life for then? And uh, there was one group of people, Epicureans, who kind of didn't believe that there was actually an afterlife, or gods for that matter. So the really only point of life was really to be happy. And all of existence was wrapped around what it meant to be happy. But being happy 
did not mean hedonism. Mm. It didn't mean doing anything and everything to satisfy and make you happy. And so um, the end result of your life was to have pleasure. But um, the concept of pleasure was not indulgence in sensual pleasures, but reason, <laughs> virtue, temperaments, those things that created pleasure. Do you see the difference? Hedonism is, I will do anything to make me happy. Because I don't care about you guys. But, but Epicureanism was, well, actually, happiness is the best result for everything. So why don't we all sit together and cook a big dinner and eat as a group? And we'll all be full and we'll all be happy. And that's, the, that's where we want to get to. Do you see the difference? Yes, very different from hedonism. Epicureanism was not hedonism. Okay? That's another group of people. So, they, they, so what they did is they didn't enter into the politics. Why? Because politics caused you stress. Anything that causes you stress was going to take away from your happiness. So you didn't do it. Okay? So they only did the things that were, were, were good for you. They, 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 they kept healthy. They, you know, they, um, they didn't engage in politics. They just wanted to sit around and study and, and get happy. Okay? So um, that was them. On the other side of the spectrum, you had this uh, group of people called the Stoics, who were, uh, uh, they become quite in influential. And Stoicism. In five minutes, brother, you got a. Well, they were um, servants of virtue as they perceived it, and virtue, as they use the word, is very much like our word righteousness, doing the right thing, and uh, they restrained the appetites of the flesh in uh, favor of uh, the uh, primacy of mind, reason, and understanding. Uh, they, in fact, probably could trace themselves back philosophically to Socrates, although the formal founder of Stoicism was Zeno in about 300 uh, BC. He, Zeno, in fact, though, was a Socratic, Platonic uh, philosopher, and it came out in this practice of uh, the reason and uh, moderation. They were uh, very influential in the Second Temple period, and uh, were many of them were monotheistic, as was Socrates in the, yep. tra in the tradition of Socrates. And they uh, taught, in fact, they they from Socrates on, they understood and taught the uh, idea of the logos, not as we understand it and translate it as a word, but as reason, very parallel to the Greek, uh, to the Hebrew wisdom. And so the Hebrew wisdom literature and the Stoic logos and reason um, developed in parallel. So much so that uh, the, the revelation that they were on the same path was put together by Philo about the time of the birth of Jesus. Uh, and uh, it, Philo's Jewish, yeah. Philo's Jewish. He was a, a Greek Jew from Alexandria, a very, very prominent uh, philosopher of the time and a religious Jew. And in fact, uh, the idea that the Messiah was the Logos was already around before John came up with it. So the Stoics had been there for several centuries uh, developing the idea of the Logos as 
a secondary emanation from God who became the means of creation in a monotheistic system. And uh, John and others just came along and said, yes, you're right. There's a, there's a revelation there that had happened in the Hellenic philosophy long before Jesus came along. Yep. So the Stoics had a form of monotheism. They sort of believed that uh, the universe was God, right? As opposed to a God-God. But there was a God, just... Like a force. A force. Some, well, maybe, but... but they, they defined it a little differently. They even... They even um, uh, Stoicism actually also influences early Christianity. Some of the early church fathers were Stoics as well, borrowing a lot of their philosophy uh, and incorporating it into uh, the idea of a universal God, he's omnipotent, he's absolutely everywhere, sort of uh, these kind of ideas. Um, and uh, so they get these groups, they are um, in the forums, maybe they have been talking with each other as well, but they've uh, come to hear our hero Paul. And, uh, and they start having a, d a discussion. Now, Paul is, when he's in the uh, marketplace, he's using a different method with which to uh, share. He's not using Hebrew Bible or anything. Um, and, uh, and this is something that we need to recognize when we're going into the world, because we're in a world where people have all kinds of information. Yes? People have all kinds of information. People have so much information. And they're now loaded with information that they actually believe in nothing. <laughs> in fact, the only thing that matters to people now is how you feel. Mm. Now, isn't that sad? Right? Epicureanism is back. <laughs> right? And uh, the point is just to be happy. Do whatever you need to do, we don't care. Just be happy. Um, and, that, and isn't that interesting that that's where we've come? Right? Mm. We're in a, a very interesting world where no one cares what you believe. Just as long as it that makes you happy, great. Um, and that's where we are. So here we have these uh, uh, philosophers, and they and they um, we get the, we get this. Paul, uh, not Paul, Luke records one of their uh, insults. What is this babbler saying? What is this seed picker? What is this? Uh, uh, what do you call him? Pseudo pseudo intellectual <laughs> saying. Okay, so a bit of an insult. Okay. Um, the other one says, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. What don't they say about Paul? Which, pe which people have said whenever they bring Paul in, in front of magistrates in Philippi or in Thessalonica. That he's a Roman citizen or that he's a Jew. Jewish, yes. There's no, no ethnicity mentioned here at all. Like the philosophers don't care. They don't say, hey, what's this Jew doing? They don't say that. They're not worried about it. Well, they don't seem to be concerned about that sort of thing. They do say that he's advocating foreign gods. Now, why would they say such a thing? <laughs> because he is preaching the good news about... Yeshua. Yeshua, okay, Jesus and... Anastasia. Okay, and Anastasia, Anastasia, what does that sound like? The Church of the Holy Sepulchre. <laughs> yeah, okay, it sounds like the Church of the Church of the Anastasius. But what does it sound like? Anastasia. Yeshua, Jesus Anastasia. Jesus Anastasia. What does it sound like? It sounds like foreign gods. There's a guy and a girl. 
and they're married and they're having fun. <laughs> so if you're if you're hearing these things and you don't understand resurrection because you don't believe it, okay, then oh we're talking about some girl called Anastasia? Yeah, who's that? Oh, I don't know, some new goddess he's talking about, all right? And um, we got a god called Zeus, and they've got a guy called Isus. <laughs> you can see where they're getting this idea. Oh, these are foreign gods. We've never heard of these people before. Okay. Uh, so in verse uh, 19, now what do we do with people who are uh, teaching foreign gods? So one group wants to know more. And, but there's also another element to this too. What's the more sinister element? If you really are advocating new religion, is that legal? So no. And so there it says, then they took him and brought him to a, a meeting of the Areopagus. Okay? So this isn't a Paul, how about you show up sometime next week and we can talk about this? This is like your police officer going, Sir, would you please come with us down to the, the, to the station so you answer a few questions? Are you arrested yet? No. no. Are you going to go with the policeman? You better, because if you don't, it might turn into an arrest, okay? So this is a polite request that Paul cannot say no to. Okay, so we're going to go to a council. This is a particular council. It's a particular place too. Okay, but it's actually a group of people. Okay, and this court is different from a magistrate, which would normally hear um, judicial rulings of crimes and things. This one deals with, deals with uh, religious matters. Okay, this is what your, your, the grouping is. So we think he's talking about new gods. I'm not 100% sure we like this idea. He's a bit of a babbler. He's got some things to say. We had better take him to court. And find out about this. And they've got a, a way of doing this. Uh, so they take him to the uh, Areopagus. There was a very famous person several hundred years prior to this who went to the same spot. Anyone know his name? Socrates. Socrates, yes. And how did it end up for Socrates? Yeah, he lost. <laughs> okay. Yes. Although it is, it is, it's a well-written speech. If anyone ever, ever wants to read a, a good, a good defence uh, of his, because Socrates was a not quite a, mon a theist like we would understand one, but he certainly didn't believe in gods. Right? He knew that that was all rubbish. He believed that there was some sort of one higher power, and he was trying to uh, uh, defend himself. And he failed, and he was required to drink poison. Okay? Um, so you can see where, where what's going to happen to Paul if he fails. Okay, all right. So at one side, we're all being polite. We're going to have a discussion. On one side, there is a sinister element here. Okay, you don't want to blow it. They're going to be very, still going to be very quite careful. Now they 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 challenge him. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? Okay. So for Greek, new is good. New is interesting. New could be progressive. New something new could take us forward. In the Jewish world, new not so good. Okay, what's better? The old. The old. Ancient. Ancient. The ancient wisdom has higher authority. 
okay, greater authority. And uh, which is interesting because what is our message, which is a Jewish message? New is good, yeah, but isn't that interesting? The Jewish world was actually reticent for that. Okay, the older wisdom was the better one. Uh, so here you have this discussion. Okay, you got a bunch of people around. Come on, Paul, tell us this new teaching you've, you've brought. And uh, away he goes. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then you get that interesting verse in verse 21. Um, where it, it's, it could be Luke or it could be uh, another redactor, but they insert uh, a sentence to describe the Athenians. Okay? So the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend all their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Okay? Um, so they sort of add this little comment for the, the reader who's never been to Athens. Verse 22. Paul then stood up and the meeting of the uh, Areopagus and people who have been there, what does it look like? What, can you describe the area? Rock. Is it, that's Mars Hill, that's kind of a, a lump of rock. Yes, it's a... So the Acropolis is the high point and the Acropolis is where all the Pantheon is, all these temples, lots of them, in, and grandiose buildings. And Mars Hill or the Areopagus is this big pile of rock uh, which is sort of it sort of juts out almost doesn't it over the city and uh, it's quite large and you can you can stand there quite safely not fall off and uh, and in sort of an open area amphitheater start talking so Paul stands up and he begins and uh, he says uh, people of Athens I see that in every way you are very religious I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship and I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Okay. What's going on there? He's making the environment and he's God known to them, how they can come into a relationship with God. Yep, he's, making, he's using his environment. Okay, so what's the first thing he does? He's observing for us. He's observed, he's observed the city, he's used his eyes, he's walked around. Okay. So, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Say something positive. Also known as flattery. Right, as opposed to, hey, listen, you bunch of pagans. Listen, we Jews, we know all about monotheism. Look at this rubbish you've got over here. Okay? No, it doesn't say any of that. It's like, I see you guys are really religious. It could also be a little dig. Like, man, have you got a hell of a lot of statues in this city? Okay? So it's a little bit of both. Okay? He's being very clever. Right? But, he's, uh, but he, he, he says something very positive to people. You know? Uh, yes, you meet somebody for the, for the very first time and you say, yeah, it's a very nice dress you're wearing. Okay. Uh, when you leave the back of your brain says, I don't care about her dress, but I better say something nice. Okay. Um, so, uh, men of Athens, I see that you're very religious. Okay? You, you've really got lots of these gods going on. And, uh, and I've looked around and I've carefully examined your stuff. Okay. So what does that uh, teach us about... Um, the mission field. We have to fit in. Yeah, fit in. 
be observant. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if you notice. Um, so if you're going to go do a uh, uh, mission field in the Islamic world, what, what did you better have read? You better have read the Quran and know the Hadiths, right? Um, and if you're going to come and work in the Jewish world, what, did you, what do you better know? Tanakh. You better know some ta Tanakh and some Talmud. <laughs> okay? if, you're going to, if that's what you want to get, in, get involved in. If you're going to go to Russia, what should you know? Probably should know some Russian. <laughs> okay? um, all right, so he's, he's being very careful and, and uh, very observant. And as he's walked around the city, he's come across something that uh, he thought was quite intriguing. And what was it? It's this altar to the unknown God, which is attested to in other texts and in archaeology, that there were, there were uh, altars all over the place. And people would actually write letters to each other saying, I greet you in the name of the unknown God. Right? As opposed to, I greet you into the name of Zeus. So people were already not believing in their own gods. They already knew that they were loads of rubbish. They just didn't know what to call the guy. So they just called him in Greek. It's, it's actually quite beautiful in Greek. Theos Hypsistos. Okay? The great God, whoever that is. Okay? We translate it as unknown God, but that's really not quite actually what it means. Okay? And, uh, and you're ignorant of this, but... I kind of got, got um, the, the information for you. Now, how is that a clever statement? What do Athenians love? Because um, Luke's already given you a hint of what, what, what they love. New stuff. New stuff. New information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They love wisdom. They love knowledge. And what don't they know here? They don't know who the unknown God is. You're, you're a city full of knowledge, but you don't know that. And so he's very clever. He says, I got that knowledge for you. That's not bad. That's pretty clever. Right? And, um, and so he's got himself a, a pretty good audience here. And in verse 24, he's now going to um, uh, describe the knowledge that they don't have. The God who made the world and everything in it. So who is this? This is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives himself, he, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Right, so how does he begin? Genesis. He does. He doesn't quote Genesis, but he starts there. Okay? He starts at creation. Right? He actually starts. And when you're in, in other big speeches that we've had in Acts, and we've had a few, when the hero gets up, whether it's Stephen or, or Paul, um, and they give their defense uh, against either the Sanhedrin or whoever they're, they're fighting, what do they use? How do they defend themselves or how do they share the story of Jesus they use sacred history right they start with you know as as our fathers told us we were wandering in the desert and then there were some prophets and then there were some kings and we get the sacred history of the Jewish people up until Jesus there's absolutely no point saying that to Greeks 
right? Because they're not, they don't not familiar. Some of them might be familiar with um, with uh, the sacred history of the Jewish people. But it's going to mean zip diddly squat uh, in this context. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, that's where you start with. You start with creation, okay? And um, and that uh, God made the world. That's a big deal. Because what is one of the things that we, in our current world view, how did the world come to be? Yes, by chance. There was no God. It just, you know, in the beginning was nothing, and somehow nothing exploded, uh, and now we're all here. Okay? Uh, it has absolutely no bearing in science. Even scientists will tell you that it's just not possible. Right. And so, yeah, and so there are some people who are very good at uh, Christian philosophy. There are some very good people who are good Science. at uh, scientists, Christian scientists talking. Uh, here, that's the way Paul starts. He starts with the God is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he actually made everything. You didn't make him. He made you. Right? So all those stuff that you see over there, this is where you get a slight insult without actually offending anybody. He doesn't live in those temples. He doesn't live in those buildings. That's all built by you guys. Okay? The God that I'm talking about, he built you. And uh, he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Where does he live? Which temple does he build? You. So the God doesn't live in those temples built by human hands. He lives in this temple built by God. And he, he doesn't need anything, so don't give him any stuff. No food offered to idols. He doesn't need anything. Every, all breath and, and everything that we have comes from him. Verse 26. From one man. Who is he talking about here? Adam. Adam. Okay. From one man he made all nations. Okay. And that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the, and the boundaries of their lands. Who doesn't he mention? Israel. He doesn't say, and then God chose a certain special people to bless the world. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he says, God made all nations. Right? No, you don't have to get Israel to be saved, do you? That'll come later. But sometimes too many of us want people to get Israel. You think, okay, so this is not going to work. And that's not the, the message that, that he doesn't even mention Israel. There's no mention of ethnicity. Okay? God made all nations, and all nations have what? They have territory and Appointed times to do stuff, right? There's a big idea of the sovereignty of of God in this in this passage, so that each nation has its uh, particular boundary, each nation has its particular land that it should have, right? And that's true, right? Yep. So it's true that Israel has the land of Israel, but it's also true that America got America. It's also true that you know New Zealand got New Zealand. Okay. Yay. Yay. Okay. Okay. Each of those little nations or big nations has their plotted 
piece of turf. And that's okay. Right? And uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that Israel is not a special land or a holy land. It's not to say that at all. It's just to say that all nations are given their portion. God, and he also talks about one man. Now, why do we need to make sure that uh, we have one man? What's so special about one man? We're all linked together. Okay, we're all linked together. That's a good one. We're all sent into the world. Sorry? We're all sent into the world. Okay, well, eventually we're going to get there, yes. So we've got that one man. One man brought in sin. Yeah, he gets a wife. <laughs> well, we put him to sleep and borrow something. <laughs> we all we are all the same. There's no difference. We have an origin. Yes, we're all the same. Yes. And we have an origin. We have an origin. For one man, one man uh, brought sin into the world. Who took who took sin out of the world? One man. Okay, so if, you, if you're going to have, if you're eventually going to get to your Jesus figure and your one man save the world, from one man we all come and it's from that one man that we're going to get ourselves redeemed, right? At the end of the day, remember, Jesus had 12 disciples, yes? Maybe he had a few more than that. Um, what would have happened if they had not run away? What would have happened to them? They would have got killed too. So it wouldn't have been one man dying for the sins of the world. It would have been a lot. Kind of actually need him to run away. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has to die himself. Right? What did Thomas say? Let's go to Jerusalem and let's die together. Right? So while not excusing our weaknesses, not excusing the disciples running away from Jesus but also remember in terms of the sovereignty of God kind of needed him to do it as well so on one hand not giving him a pass but on the other it's one man dies for the sins of the world okay and uh, so here one man again okay we all start we've got our common origin all the same common source we're also going to build up to our our final point that there's going to be this one man that's going to be make everything new again and uh, God did this uh, so everybody gets their nations and all these nations have their appointed boundaries and their times for being empires okay big big God's in control idea here and then in verse 27 we get the reason why God's giving all these nations their boundaries and why is it? Yeah, God did this so that they would seek Him. So who's going to seek Him? The nations are going to seek Him. All right. So not just Israel is going to seek God. Everybody is going to seek God. He's telling them there is a longing of all human beings. The longing for looking for something mighty, like their gods. And they try to connect with them. The story was always bigger than us. 
And so we wanted to find out the origin of the story. Um, so God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. Now, while we're not quoting Bible, okay, we do know that obviously when you talk about creation, it's Genesis, yes? Mm. yes. So if someone said, or if I, someone, me, if I said the words, Yes, yes, yes. If you seek me with all your heart, you will. Okay, where's that written? Deuteronomy, yes. Okay, it's a promise from the Torah. It's right at the end. Moses is giving his big spiel in front of people as they're about to go into the land of Israel and blow it. Okay, and he gives, just before that passage, he describes how bad they're going to do. Okay, you, you kinda, you're kind of going to lose the plot. But then he gives them a, a, a really a fantastic blessing. He says, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And uh, that is an absolute beautiful promise. And we know some people who that has been their journey. That in their journey to find the God... They went and chased all kinds of things. They chased the sun, the moon, and the stars. They journeyed to India and smoked drugs and lived in a cave and grew up. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. And, and then eventually, okay, when they get to the lowest of the low and they don't know what to do and they're on their, on their knees in their, in their hotel just saying, Lord, where are you? I, I can't find you. He shows up. And, uh, and so uh, it's true and, so, and, and that wasn't just true for Jews Paul is saying that actually God's the king of the universe and he actually wanted to, all people to find him okay? he wanted them all to, to, to search for him so there were always going to be some mysteries inside creation that would attract you to the divine okay? so um, how? I don't know Okay. But this is what Paul is saying. Okay. So God did this so that they would seek him. Okay. That, the, that this would happen. And you can see this was happening in the Greek world. Uh, you know, not, they weren't always going to wrap it in the same way we were. Because they couldn't. They couldn't know the sacred history of God. They, couldn't, they don't have sacred writings. They, didn't, they would be talking about God in their way of talking about God. And so you ended up with with the monotheism in, in, in movements in, in, uh, in, in Egypt and in, in Greek, okay? and including people like Socrates, who ends up dying because he thinks that the, 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 the gods are false and there's something bigger out there. Okay. And uh, so in verse uh, 28, For in him we live and we move and we have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Does anyone know uh, where that's from? The phenomena by Aratus. Yes. So um, it was a very popular poem at the time, actually, and well known in Latin as well. Can everybody hear this? Yep. So there was a, a, a very. Uh, he was a Stoic too, wasn't he? He was a Stoic, and uh, they're from Cilicia, and according to one historical source, he was from Tarsus. Now, isn't that interesting? He knew, he knew Zeno um, as well. So, so you end up with this Greek poetry, and Paul is quoting. 
Greek poetry. No, I double checked. This is all from all from the same line. I actually went and read the the that that line. It's like the fifth line of uh, of the poem, and it's that line. I don't know why they say that. Paul quotes from a different poet in T Titus, but in this one he quotes from from the phenomena. And so, in in terms of just going back into the into um, uh, verses twenty seven and twenty twenty eight, that Gentiles would seek the Lord. The the Bible does record some Gentiles who knew God. Who were they? Who were the two big famous Gentiles who knew God? Okay, way before then. Melchizedek. Yes. <laughs> Melchizedek's one. Right? Melchizedek is the, is the priest of El Elyon. Right? And uh, so he knew God. Most high God. Most high God. And, uh, and, and so he's worshipping God. So who's actually worshipping God before the Jews? Noah. Gentiles. Now isn't that interesting? Um, and there's a great video uh, which you can look on YouTube uh, by an uh, Israeli archaeologist called Eli Shukran. And uh, when he was digging in the city of David, he came upon a, a, a tomb, a sealed room with no windows and no doors. When they went inside it, they discovered that it was actually holding four rooms. It was a, some sort of building and that would now become encased in stone. So obviously somebody felt it was really worth preserving. Yes? So they entombed a building. Inside this building, they discovered uh, a, a place to uh, crush olives, and so you would make holy oil. There was a place to tie up your sacrifices. So they actually found where you stick the posts in and actually tie your, your animal, and then they, and where you slaughter the animal with the blood that drains away, <coughs> and an altar. Now, in, uh, we have in Jewish history, also known in our Bible, the Jews destroyed all the pagan altars. But they didn't destroy this one. Why not? It was used by Melchizedek. Potentially. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a pretty good idea that the Jewish people believed that this was an altar actually to God. They could not destroy it. They didn't want to use it because they had their now own altar, okay, up on the Temple Mountain. So they entombed it. And so that one down by the Gion Springs? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, found recently. He put it online, and yes. you can and you can see it all. And we had the opportunity to go once, which was absolutely fascinating. It was a great, great study. Um, but it does demonstrate that Gentiles are worshiping the Lord before Jewish people were, and of course Noah, the only person in the Bible called righteous, the only person with actually the epitaph uh, Sadiq. He's uh, he's righteous, and he's a he's a Gentile. Would you put Job in that category as well? Um, if you think Job's a real person, yes. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, you, you would. He's got some issues, right? but he, he, we don't know whether he's Jewish or not, depending on, on uh, some, they, some Jewish people try, Jewish scholars try and identify Job as being Jewish. Others push him even further to, to right. How about Caleb being half and half? 
Yeah, Caleb's half and half, but he's attached by this stage to the monotheistic tradition of the Jewish people. But we do have in the Bible recordings of Gentiles who, who are definite uh, God worshippers. And then in the ancient world, we see uh, monotheistic traditions showing up. Right. Yeah, there. It's, it's the it's the thing about like like Stoicism was didn't believe in the all these gods. They believed in one God, but not in the way we would call God. Like the 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 thing that was alive, the universe, that was God. There was only one. Just it was everywhere. For for them, they had a name. They had uh, an address. Um, yeah, so it was a bit more, more localized. But the promise was there. If you seek him, you'll find him. Which is true for us all. Uh, we are his offspring. And, then, and so now that we've quoted Greek poetry. Now, how does Paul know Greek poetry? In between his boxing and wrestling training at the gymnasium, he was reading Greek poets. There you go. <laughs> Pardon? Absolutely. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? So yeah, he he. There is, there are some uh, quotes from the Talmud, but but it's late, that you shouldn't read other books, right? Rabbi Akiva, you shouldn't read other books. What books are they talking about when they're saying that? Talking about New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're, they're, oh, and, and, and Rabbi Akiva actually mentions Ben Sirah as well. As is, we don't like that one either. But, um, but it's late. That Rabbi Akiva is like 100, you know, 130 years after, 100 years after, after Jesus. But prior to Yeshua, the, the Jewish world, the Hellenized Jews who were uh, mingling with the, with the Gentile world, very happy to read their literature too. Uh, in fact, some Jewish Second Temple period texts um, actually. Not, they don't quote Greek literature, but they use the same words in the same fashion. So, uh, like the guy who, who wrote Ecclesiasticus um, uh, looks like he read Homer, definitely, because he uses the same word structure, same, same, same things. So, uh, and so Paul's obviously read some Greek, Greek literature. Hands up here who just reads the Bible. We all read other books too, right? Yeah. Yeah, we do. Okay. And uh, anyone read the Quran? Okay. There are other books, but uh, anyone read the Book of Mormon? I tried. It was really hard. Okay. Uh, but there are, there are reading other texts doesn't make you a pagan or a heathen. Um, and for Paul, it was actually a good deal because he had an opportunity to quote Stoic philosophy uh, back at him and then use that as a springboard to say, okay, uh, he, the, the, the universe is giving us everything. We're all giving us our breath and we're making us. We're, the, we're his offspring. And as his offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone. Okay? An image made by human design because now he's using logic, right? Okay, if we're made by him, how can he actually look like that? Because I don't look like that. 
Right? If I'm, if I'm made like from him, I don't look anything like that statue. Just gold, just silver, just stuff. I'm, I'm something different. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Okay? So, this is now, this is now where Paul's getting, I'm going to um, give people a warning. And we have to see whether how relevant that is to today. In the past, God has overlooked ignorance. That's what Paul is saying. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Alright. What do you think a Greek understood when he heard the word repent? Change of mind. Change of mind, yeah. Okay. For Jewish people, when they hear the word repent, what does it mean? Turn around. <laughs> Turn around, yeah. Stop what you're doing. <laughs> but for Greek people, it meant, it meant something different. But you still use that word. Um, and so, it might not have been the best word to have used. What do you think? Definition okay, so in, in, in Jewish tradition, right, if you're going to repent, what does that actually mean you're going to do? Stop doing what you're doing. Stop doing what you're doing. Right? We, we say the words turn around, and things, but, but physically what's actually going to happen is you're not going to do what you're going to keep doing. Okay? You're, I repent, I do say I'm sorry, I, there's, you know, there's some inward, inward emotional stuff too, but there's also an outward sign. The outward sign is, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. But when a, for a Greek person who's going to change his mind, what does that look like? <coughs> it's more intellectual, but what does it actually physically look like? So you're an Epicurean, and you're going to repent. <laughs> what does that mean you're going to do? You give up your philosophy and embrace a new one. Well, yeah, you might change, you'll begin to, begin to change your philosophy. You might actually go, I'm not going to sit amongst the Epicurean school anymore. I might go and sit with those guys. I might find a different school and start studying some more Socrates or something like that. Okay? There's the, the words we use uh, have a different impact on the people that are hearing them. Okay? Now, I don't know if that's what Paul meant. No clue. Um, I can ask him when we see him next time. same word appears throughout the Gospels as well. It's, uh all through the New Testament. Yes, of course, but they're also talking to Jews at the time. But right. uh, here we're talking to Greeks. So the same word. So what are they hearing when, as opposed to what is a, what is a Jewish guy hearing? To think about other opportunities of the value of life. Yeah. Uh, to think about... Okay. Yeah. Okay. Different track yeah. of your living style. Yeah. But it is interesting that that what Paul is saying, and what Paul is saying is most probably true in the effect that God wants all people to repent. So figure out what it means by that. Okay. For he has set a day, now why does God want people to repent? Okay. For he has set a day when he will judge the world. Right? The judgment is coming, he gives a warning. Yeah, and he's been saying nice things in the past and about how wonderful these religious these people are. And uh, he says, I can share with you some new knowledge. I've worked out who this unknown God is. He's actually the creator of the universe. And he's not like your gods. He's actually made you in his image. So he doesn't look anything like that stuff. Uh, and he actually wants you to change your mind. And you better because he's going to come and judge the place. Okay. Um, 
And uh, he's going to judge the world with what? Fire and brimstone? What does the Greek say that he's going to judge the world with? In righteousness. Righteousness. Okay. And he's going to do so how? By the one man who has been appointed to do this. So one man started the show. One man's going to finish the show. And this, this, this one man uh, is coming and he has given proof to everyone by raising this one man from the dead. Right? What at the, with a con so far in the, in the uh, book of Acts, whenever we've come to declare the Messiah, both the Jews and Gentiles, we end up talking about the resurrection. That's the good news. New thoughts today. Right, because what was he brought to the Areopagus because? What was the reason? He was brought to the Areopagus because he's been talking about the? Resurrection. Resurrection. Okay, is this some female goddess you're talking about? And so in his defense, he eventually ends up by saying, the one man who's coming to, to judge the world is proven to be that one man because of that concept I've been talking about before, the resurrection. It's not some female goddess married to our male god. It's actually a physical thing. Does it notice? He doesn't say that man is the son of God. Yeah, no, he doesn't say that. Or a demigod. Yes. It wouldn't have been foreign for them to hear that. That's right. That's, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't mention Jesus as the son of God. Because um, the last time we actually have that occurring is actually in the Gospels with um, Pilate. Okay, Pilate is talking to the, the Jewish accusers, and they say to Pilate, he claims to be the Son of God. What's Pilate's immediate reaction? No, he walks, the next thing that says, in the next sentence is, he walks into Jesus and says, who are you? Because what is a Roman herd when someone says, You're, he's the Son of God? Emperor. Okay, well, Caesar is the son of God. Okay, that's one thing. But in they had demigods, had right? Demigods. They had Hercules. They had they had Perseus. They had uh, many stories of gods coming down, making sons and daughters, and then those heroes going off and doing wonderful things. Now somebody's just told Pilate, "Oh, the guy you've got, he's one of those guys." He's like, "What?" <laughs> Next sentence is he walks in and goes, "Who are you?" You know, they they just told me that you're like. Hercules, because if you are, I'm in real trouble. You know, what am I doing with you? Um, so you're right. He can't say Jesus is the Son of God, because they would go, "Cool, got lots of them." Okay, shall we build a statue out of him? Right? What's he look like? Um, uh, because, but, but so he doesn't say that. He doesn't say the word sacrifice. You, know? you need blood to shed for, the, for the forgiveness of your sins. No, no, no concept of that. No bearing for them. Those words will come later. But for here, you, you don't say it. But you will say the resurrection. That's your proof that Jesus is exactly who he is. He has to rise from the dead. And the resurrection, which is a beautiful concept to you and me, is it not? Yes? Because in Greek theology, they don't resurrect. When you die, you go to a beautiful world. Why would you want to come back? Christian theology, what have we got? Actually, some people have that theology too. Mm. Okay. 
When we die, we go to a beautiful place, and why the heck would you want to come back? But when you get to the New Testament, what does Jesus say? The meek will inherit the earth. What does Revelation say? Where do we all go to at the end of Revelation? Earth. Heaven, heaven descends here. It's, uh, it's, a, it's not a good concept for Greek people. So the, so the response here is when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them, they sneer. Oh, who would want to come back to this place? This matter, I get a new body? Why would I want one of those for? You know, I'll be in Elysium with, with uh, the Greek god of wine, drinking wine for the rest of my natural life, or unnatural life, or whatever. Sounds wonderful. Okay. Um, but there are those that are attracted. And so there are going to be some who hear the message. Okay, we're not going to have success with everyone. And there are going to be those that, uh, that, uh, that love it. And so their response is, what is their response? Do they run off to the baptismal form? <laughs> ah, we'll talk some more. <laughs> some of them are not exactly instantaneous. Although, at that, Paul left the council. So he's defended himself successfully. Okay. Might not have won lots of people, okay? but he, didn't, he doesn't have to drink poison. And he's, not, he's managed to defend his, uh, his argument. And uh, some of the people become followers of Paul and believed. Okay? And so a small community in Athens begins. And the two people that are noted, uh, uh, one of, is one of the members of this community, Dionysus. Okay? Uh, who in uh, church history? Any idea what what he becomes the bishop of? Athens. <laughs> okay, so he's one of the you know uh, philosophical leaders of the city. So when he comes to faith, he's a logical choice to become the leader of the church in Athens. So according to tradition, that's what he does. He becomes the um, the first bishop of, of Athens, and um, and because he's also uh, heavily involved in Stoicism. In the Middle Ages, he becomes the patron saint of scholastic learning. Okay? So the pursuit of knowledge and stuff, if you happen to love your saint's history. Uh, who's the other person who's mentioned? Remember, this is Luke writing this, yes? A woman. A woman! Okay, so we don't get anybody else who's there. Um, uh, but a woman also comes uh, to faith. And uh, she joins the movement. Her name is uh, Damaris, and get a small number of, of others. Now, the, the exact timing of that last section doesn't mean that then and there they both became believers, because there's a probably a good uh, uh, reason that Damaris actually wasn't there. Because in Greek uh, public forums like that, who's who's not present? The women. Okay. So it's most likely that she actually uh, was attached to the synagogue. That's what most uh, people would, most scholars say, that she's a, one of the rich, prominent women um, uh, of, the, of the city, <laughs> as Luke is always wont to describe, okay, all the rich girls who end up Albert's paying their... Albert's not here to... Sorry? Albert's not here to enjoy that. No. <laughs> yeah, the rich women. Uh, it's, a, it's a little trait of Luke's, isn't it? Just to make sure that the women are mentioned, especially the ones with a little bit of means to help people out. Um, and so a small community is, is created. Uh, so on one hand, or do you think this is a success? How's that? Uh, 
entirely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on one hand, he has obviously not died. So, success number one. Okay. But part two, it didn't end up like um, Philippi. It didn't end up like Thessalonica. It didn't end up, certainly didn't end up like the Bereans. Um, he only ended up with a small group, small church. So you end up uh, never having an epistle to Athens. You never have this great flourishing uh, early, early church uh, uh, movement in, in, in Athens. It's other Greek cities that, that, that do it. So even to the point today, the Greek Orthodox don't have a metropolitan of Athens. It's not one of their big cities where you have a big chunk. You have uh, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Corinth, and Constantinople. That's where their big power centers are. And not, not Thessalonica. I think his next visit is obviously to Corinth. Yes. And it stands in contrast, both in the makeup of the people and the results of his mission. Yes. But obviously he was there much longer. Yeah, he does, because he wanted to leave. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wonder what, we, we don't know this necessarily, but what Paul's retrospective would have been about Athens versus Corinth. Mm. Hope so. Because uh, remember, what was the vision that Paul was given when he was in uh, Asia? No, 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 that's Peter. So Peter, you know, the Holy Spirit is saying, don't go here, don't go there. And he gets a vision, which he then shares with the community, remember? Uh, so visions are shared with the community. It wasn't that Paul woke up and said, oh, I had a dream, we're all off to Macedonia. He actually shared to see, what do you think, guys? It's actually from the Lord. And it was a community decision. But he had a vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia. Where's Athens? Yes, it's not in Macedonia. How did he get to Athens? He was whisked away. Yes, it wasn't his choice. Okay, he had success in Macedonia. Why? It's where the vision was from. Okay, he ends up in Athens. Doesn't work so well. But then again, that wasn't his target anyway. Okay? We have a, we have a description about what he did in it. Okay, because there's no Silas, there's no there's no Timothy. It's just Luke and, and Paul. So Luke's you know got, well, might as well describe what the heck we did. But it wasn't uh, uh, the the there was no call to go there, unlike what we're going to see, what we saw in Macedonia and in the next city, where God says, "There's people I've got here for you," but He doesn't say that about Athens. So do you think it was a success or a failure? Well, he, well, I think it's, I mean, because we made the same mistake this day. We don't see people come to faith and then, okay, we fell. Who said so? Yeah. I mean, is there one, one plant when we have no good, you know, with the benefits? I think it was a success. Everybody heard it. If that's the measure of success. Which it would be. Which it would be. That's what we're told to do. Right. Correct. So I think, I think on one hand, you'd have to say, sure, a few people coming to faith is great. On the other hand... We're not told to bring them to faith, we're told to go and Yeah. Hell. Where was Paul told to go to? Macedonia. So that's where he has the most success. Because that's where he was told to go. It's a shame that he didn't go to Corinth. 
Yeah, Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea are the three major cities. So in that's Again, where we're measuring success based on numbers, like churches. If you see a mega church, is a very successful church, and then you see the theology is garbage. Right. Right. In terms of our sacred history, what I'm What's listed and recorded here, and the way it's recorded, is you have a vision saying, go here, and he's over here, and he has a, when he's in Corinth and he wants to leave, God's actually going to say, no, 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 I've got people here for you. But God doesn't say those things about Athens. He doesn't say, go to Athens. He doesn't say, I've got people here. And so, there's, as servants of the Lord, where do you want to go? Where God wants him, okay, and uh, and that's that's like, and you can see that reflected in I think the text. That doesn't mean that his time in, in Athens is worthless, and it doesn't mean that Dionysus and Damaris are are unhappy that they became believers and they are. I mean, great. But, uh, that's all. That, what is what is sacred history recording for us now in this entire chapter? Who didn't we hear from? No Holy Spirit. Not one mention. That doesn't say he wasn't there, but sacred history is not recording it. Okay? it the, the sacred history is not recording the success to a miracle. It's not recording the success to an outpouring of the Spirit. It's not recording a success to baptisms and speaking in tongues. What's it recording the success to? Bible studies. Where you sit down and you reason and debate. Paul does it in synagogues and he succeeds and he does it in the marketplaces and he succeeds. How did he shepherd the new believers? How did Paul shepherd the new believers? We have no idea. No idea. So maybe just subjectively, his subject experience of Christ himself could be the, the very basic thing. Well, he, he shepherd his brother. In his epistles, he's going to tell us how he does it, but our sacred history isn't. In the epistles, he's going to just tell Timothy very particular this is how you choose shepherds this is how you make sure if you're going to have a leader of your church make sure they look like this I was going to say it's a historical turning point in redemptive history because God is not now accepting ignorance anymore as an excuse yeah that's an interesting concept and that's where the Holy Spirit comes in could be because that's contained fruitful by the power of the Holy Spirit could be yeah could be as a partial answer to your question, uh, we do see that Paul sets up elders in, in the places that he's visited to make sure that they have uh, respected leaders. Yep. yep. And we get that in, in the epistles, where he deliberately says, Here's what we've done. Yeah. And when he's going back through early uh, history. Yes, yeah. yes, he's done that in, the, in Acts yeah, 14 and, and such. All right. Okay, great. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.